Texas. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we'd like to, to begin. My name is Gary Boatwright. I am serving on the host committee for the conference here in Salt Lake City. Um, I'm st standing in behalf of Bob Voyles, who is probably right now pulling on the slot machines in Wendover, Nevada. Um, he wishes he could be here and apologizes. Um, but uh, we hope that you're enjoying your time here in Salt Lake City. It has been fun for us to host you, and we, we hope you enjoy your remaining days. Uh, the, the last couple of months, I've had the opportunity to get a small glimpse of what goes on to put a conference like this together. And it is a truly eye-opening experience to see the work that the AASLH staff, the program committee, the host committee, and the many other volunteers give to make this conference a success. And I think it would be good for us just to give those people a round of applause for the great conference that they've given us. Well, it is now my uh, privilege uh, to introduce our plenary speaker. Uh, we just want to mention that this is being sponsored by the Special Collections of the J. Willard Marriott Library of the University of Utah. And following this, Professor Ulrich will be down in the exhibit booth at the AASLH booth signing copies of her books, which will be available for purchase as well. Well, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich grew up in the Rocky Mountain West, but she has spent most of her adult life in New England. She is the author of many articles and books on early American history, including A Midwife's Tale, which won the Pulitzer Prize for History in 1991 and became the subject of a PBS documentary and an award-winning website, dohistory.org. She has frequently consulted for museums and historical societies during the last 10 years and has written and taught courses on the use of ordinary objects as sources for history. Her 2001 book, The Age of Homespun, is organized around 14 domestic items, including a linen tablecloth, two Indian baskets, and an unfinished stocking. Her recent work, works includes Well-Behaved Women Seldom Make History, which was published in 2007, and Tangible Things, a 2011 exhibit of artworks and artifacts from Harvard's many collections. She is now completing a study of 19th century Mormon diaries, a project that returns her to her Western roots and provides the material for this plenary address. Professor Ulrich is past president of the American Historical Association and is currently 300th anniversary university professor at Harvard University. Please welcome Professor Ulrich. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be here, and I feel uh, very much at home. I um, never actually resided in any permanent way in Utah, although my grandparents lived in Utah, and I made many wonderful visits to Salt Lake City, and then returned and did my undergraduate work at the University of Utah. So I identify very strongly with the youths, and I'm delighted to have 
um, the sponsorship from the Special Collections Library. It's also a lot of fun to see some of my colleagues from graduate school at the University of New Hampshire down here on the second row. <laughs> um, so um, let me see if I can get my, oh, there we go. We've got a great efficiency. So here's my presentation for today. I hope you can see this is not a highly visual presentation, but sometimes it helps a little bit with the geography to be able to place things because I am going to engage in some crossroads geographic um, this afternoon, and I'll try to help you stay located geographically. As Gary mentioned, my most recent book is named after a bumper sticker. Some of you may know about that. In an article published in 19, there we go, oh, I'll get it. In an article published in 1976, it actually was my first published scholarly article, I observed, well-behaved women seldom make history. And these words have now taken on a life of their own very much. Believe me, I do not get royalties. They show up everywhere, sometimes with my name, sometimes without it. And sometimes I get emails thanking me for my slogan and asking me what the heck I actually meant. And I have to confess that my purpose in coining this phrase was not to celebrate rabble-rousers. I wasn't thinking about Mae West or Annie Oakley or any other rebellious women. The comment was actually directed at my fellow historians because it appeared in the opening paragraph of an article on Puritan funeral sermons, if you can imagine. And I was tired of studies of early American women that focused only on the Salem witch trials. That all, that's all people seem to be able to find to talk about. And I wanted to argue that there was value in paying attention to the mostly forgotten women who sustained the colonies day by day. And as most of you know, that was a really fateful decision because I'd gone on to a career that has focused, if not exclusively, in a central way on everyday life in all its dimensions. I've even written about, as Gary said, an unfinished stocking and a tablecloth and other unlikely topics. Now, to be honest about it, there's plenty of sex and violence in my books. But of course, there's plenty of sex and violence in everyday life, right? So that doesn't really negate my comment. What I've tried to show in my scholarship, and I think this is very close to the hearts of local history, is that small details really matter. And that if we are going to understand sensational events, national, global events, We need to focus on things, small details, that may, at first glance, seem insignificant. 
As I argued in that original essay, sometimes the real drama is in the humdrum. I, I quipped at one point that nobody had ever put that slogan on a bumper sticker, and one of my graduate students immediately made magnets and handed them out. <laughs> so I would like to illustrate that point today by talking about two very humdrum diaries. Diaries produced by two remarkable midwives. The first one, many of you have heard of. She was the subject of my book, A Midwife's Tale. Her name was Martha Ballard, and she was born in 1735 in the town of Oxford, Massachusetts, which is near Worcester, Massachusetts, in the central part of the state. And then during the American Revolution, she and her family migrated to the town of Hollowell, Maine, which includes the present-day capital of Maine, Augusta, which was a, a relatively newly settled area, truly a frontier area. Now, I'd like to compare her with another midwife. And interestingly enough, this other midwife was born just a few miles away from Martha Ballard. Her name is Patty Sessions. And chronologically, she could have been Martha Ballard's granddaughter. She was born in the town of Bethel, Maine, in 1795, inland from Hollowell. She married, had children, and then she, too, engaged on a migration, but a much more expansive migration. In the 1830s, like many New Englanders, she and her family went west. But she went west as a newly converted member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, as we all know. She went on from Maine to Ohio, then to Missouri, and on to the utopian Mormon town of Nauvoo, Illinois, and eventually in 1847 to the territory of Utah, and lived not far from where we sit right now for the rest of her life. One would expect remarkable differences between two diaries that were produced in different locations, seemingly in different religious traditions, and certainly with a different set of life experiences. I mean, we're talking about a two-generation gap in these two diaries. But in fact, there are remarkable and striking continuities in these diaries. Both women kept earlier records, probably um, records of births that have been lost. But in a fascinating way to me, their extant diaries open at almost exactly the same point in their own life cycle. Martha Ballard began her diary in 1785 when she was 50 years old, and Patty Sessions began hers in January 1846, just before her 51st birthday. Each woman kept day-by-day -day records into old age. 
Martha Ballard has a 27-year-long diary. She made her last entries in the spring of 1812, a few weeks before her death at the age of 77. And Patty Session made her last halting entries in 1888, when she was 93 years old, and she died in December 1892, just two years away from her 100th birthday. Martha Ballard and Patty Sessions were well-behaved women. Like other pioneers, they sustained their families and their communities through some amazing difficulties. They survived migrations, wars, frontier violence, floods, droughts, pestilence, and endemic and epidemic illness. In that sense, they belong to the cadre of resolute and mostly invisible women who have always held up the sky. And we know their statues, we know their poetry, but we don't know their names, usually. And that's what's so interesting about these two women. Well-behaved women are usually too busy caring for other people to record their own lives. These women were different. Perhaps because their calling as midwives and healers invited them to keep at least perfunctory records. They were record keepers for their communities. But mostly, I think, because of who they were. They responded in a very powerful way to the enormous changes they experienced in their lives and felt disposed as mature women to take some note of what was happening around them. They made history, not only by helping to build new communities, but by documenting their own and their neighbors' lives. So it's the diaries that make them be outstanding people. Ballard's diary was the foundation um, for my book, A Midwife's Tale, and then went on in the remarkable documentary film done by Laurie Con levitt And I always wish, I think I have two, two shots of the diarist. I always wish I had a picture of Martha Ballard. I said famously in the opening of that film, after we get a shot of Kailani Sewell Lee in her canal, or her canoe impersonating Martha Ballard, I say in a snippy way, I don't know what Martha Ballard looked like. And when I said that, Kailani was just horrified. She said, here, I've worked so hard to make people believe I'm Martha Ballard, and then you have to undercut me by saying you don't know what Martha Ballard looked like. Well, I don't. I can know her through her voice through her pen on paper, through her life. But I'm pretty happy to let Kailani represent her. She's a marvelous actor and did a great job. Now, there are a few photographs of Patty Sessions, but I'm not going to show them to you because they're really awful. (laughs) So I'm sorry if there are any of her descendants in the room. But, um, you know, she's very old. And um, the diary is such a vibrant diary that I prefer um, to represent her 
through one wonderful, vibrant artifact that survives, that in addition to the diary was a product of her own hand. This diary, still bright and evocative, has been preserved by her descendants. It's a schoolgirl sampler. She was a little older than some girls when she began it. She began it in Bethel, Maine in 1811. I think she was 15 or 16 years old then. Uh, Patty Bartlett is my name, and with my needle I wrought the same, the familiar little motto. But she ran away and got married, and she never finished her samplers uh, at that point. And so we can all identify with her, all of us of the unfinished needlework club. (laughs) But Patty was a finisher. And shortly after arriving in the Salt Lake Valley in 1847 while living in a log cabin with a dirt floor, she sat down and finished her sampler. And then she recorded that. So she was a record keeper, began in 1811 in Bethel, Maine, and then completed in the Salt Lake City, North America in 1848. And on that sampler, probably a verse that was part of the original pattern, she wrote uh, a kind of motto that I think could be the motto of well-behaved women of her generation and earlier. It could stand for Martha Ballard as well as for Patty Sessions. She stitched, The mind should be inured to thought, the hands in skillful labor taught. Let time be usefully employed, that art and nature be enjoyed. And then she signed it, Patty Session. Well, it's a truism that without sources, there is no history. But we also need to understand those sources. And I think those of you who know a midwife's tale remember that most people who had looked at Martha Ballard's diary said it was filled with mundane detail of little interest, filled with trivia. The same has been true of Patty Sessions. I'm pretty good friends with one of her descendants who just thinks the diary is impossibly boring. Oh, that diary, she said, when I expressed my enthusiasm for it. (laughs) So my task today is a, a challenging one. What I want to try to emphasize is that there is, if not drama, in these humdrum records. There's powerful history, history that pushes back against conventional sources. Before I discovered Martha Ballard's diary, I understood the history of childbirth in the early United States as a history about the decline of midwifery and about growing professionalism among male physicians. It's probably a history that you all were exposed to at some point, that it was the magic of the discovery of anesthesia or of forceps that displaced the ignorant, unwashed midwife with science in its most extreme version or in its more um, feminist version 
that brought in intervention against the sort of loving, gentle midwife. Well, Martha Ballard's diary forced me to reassess that history. In some ways, it turned the story upside down. From the vantage point of her uh, her diary, it's not the midwife who feels incompetent and incapable. It's the bumbling young doctors who didn't yet have the experience to recognize a normal course of labor. And Martha Ballard's diary helped me to see a lot of cooperation between doctors and midwives as well as rivalry. And it helped me to see that the real challenge for maintaining traditional midwifery came from transformations in the female economy, which broke down the relationship between young women and their mothers in the household production system, took daughters into school, out of school, emphasized professionalism and science, even in an area where it wasn't science and was still struggling to come to terms with illness, and changed a complex set of relationships and gender division of labor. wasn't a simple technological revolution. Ballard's story was local, but it opened up to historical interpretation, new ways of thinking about women's work and labor and change over time. Patty Sessions' diary also transforms history as I have previously understood it. It's a history, indeed, it takes us into the 19th century in a period where the competition comes from a real backlash against so-called heroic or regular medicine by botanics healers or Thompsonians, something that many of you in this room are familiar with. And Patty Sessions was an herbalist and a Thompsonian now three generations or two generations after Martha Ballard. The context had changed. She shows also, and this is the point I'm going to be emphasizing toward the end of my talk, the intersection of traditional midwifery with faith healing, utopianism, and health reform, and ultimately with feminism, to my surprise. Taken together, The two diaries show both continuity and change in the years between the Revolution and the Civil War. And so I'd like to begin by talking a little bit about the continuities, because the most surprising thing to me was how similar these diaries are, and in a very large way, how similar their practices were. Both women not only delivered babies, but cared for the sick as herbalists and healers. They compounded their own remedies. They laid out the dead. Both women attended autopsies conducted by male physicians. Both women were mothers, grandmothers, and good neighbors who knew how to spin, weave, raise and preserve food, milk cows, make candles and cheese, sew and knit. Both women kept rigorous accounts of their economic activities. Both women were deeply religious, though in different ways. And both women perpetuated 
long-standing traditions of obstetrical practice. In books and films, childbirth is often a moment of high drama. In the thousands of deliveries these two women performed, it was often rather mundane, which is one reason the diaries seem a bit humdrum. For both, getting to a delivery was more dramatic than anything that happened when they got there. They knew what to do. And because when they knew what to do, in most cases, things went quite well. And it took me a long time to figure out as I parsed Martha's diary trying to find that intervention as a doctor or whether she used instruments in a certain way or thrust her hand into the woman's vagina to pull out a, a, a foot that had been turned with breech delivery. I mean, the kind of horror stories that I had read in the prescriptive literature and wasn't there, wasn't there. And her success rate was remarkable. It was as good as it was in the United States in the early 20th century before antibiotics. She didn't have antibiotics, but she had skill, which is what really mattered. But that doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of drama in this practice. The drama, of course, had to do with getting to the delivery. Here is Martha Ballard's description of a journey to a laboring mother in the spring of 1789. Forgive me, this is in a midwife's tale, but I'm going to tell it anyway because I love this story. Comes straight out of the diary. April 24th, 1789, a severe storm of rain. Now, she lived on the edge of the Kennebec River before it had been dammed at Augusta and brought under control. There were spring runoff. There were raging creeks down into the river. So it's just a world of water, a world in motion. A severe storm of rain. I was called at 1 hour p.m. from Mrs. Huzzy's to it by Ebenezer Hewan. Cross the river in their boat, a great sea a-going. We got safe over, then set out for Mr. Hewan's. I crossed a stream on the way on a fleeting logs and got safe over. Wonderful is the goodness of Providence. I then proceeded on my journey went beyond Mr. Haynes's, and a large tree blew up by the roots before me, which caused my horse to spring back, and my life was spared. Great and marvelous are thy sparing mercies, O God. I was existed over the fallen tree by Mr. Haynes, went on, soon came to a stream. The bridge was gone. Mr. Hewan took the reins, waded through, and led the horse Assisted by the same almighty power, I got safe through and arrived unhurt. Mrs. Hewan safe delivered at 10 hour evening of a daughter. Well, that's a delivery. <laughs> now, it's, it stunned me and delighted me when I began to work on Patty Sessions' diary and discovered on April 10th, 1846, so we're more than 50 years later, a fabulous account. At that point, 
She was in a wagon train trying to cross from the Mississippi River town of Nauvoo, Illinois, over into a temporary, really a refugee camp called Winter Quarters on the Missouri River in Potawatomi Indian Territory. Temporary respite. She, too, had a harrowing journey to a mother in labor. But in this place, the mother was also in motion. Patty was in one group of wagons, the laboring woman two miles behind in another. None of them had a home, although the husband of the laboring woman found an abandoned log cabin for shelter from the torrential rain. Patty and the woman she assisted were refugees. They were fleeing mobs and informal militias that had besieged the Mormon town of Nauvoo and had told the Mormons they had to get out, began to burn houses and haystacks and throw people into the river, and they got out um, a little too early for a wagon train across Iowa. This is the way Patty described the day before that delivery and then the summons to come to the laboring woman. It rains hard. Brother Rockwood came to our wagon, told us the word was to get out of this mud as soon as possible. We move before breakfast, go three miles, cross the creek on new bridges that our men had made, had to double teams all the way through mud and rain, eat in our wagon, while the team goes back after Brother Rockwood's wagon, nothing but drows for the teams to eat. Here we camped. The men went to browsing the cattle, some to cutting wood and burning coal. We got supper, went to bed, and it soon began to thunder and lightning, and the rain came faster than ever. About two o'clock in the morning, I was called for to go back two miles. It then snowed. I rode behind the man through mud and water, some of the way belly deep in the house, I found the sister that I was called to in an old log cabin. Her child was born before I got there. She had rode 13 miles after she was in travail, crossed the creek on a log after dark. Her husband carried over such things as was necessary. And then she goes on to describe she finally got home the next morning. She didn't say wonderful is the goodness of providence, but the sentiment was very much the same. Patty Sessions officiated at 52 deliveries between Nauvoo and Winter Quarters. It's about 300 miles. They were about three months making that crossing through horrendous conditions. There are still ruts in the prairie visible from those migrations in that horrible year. Now, the circumstances in which these two births took place were very different in many ways, and yet the conventions were absolutely the same. The laboring woman and her midwife were connected by long-developed rituals, 
Husbands fetched the midwife. That was the convention. That was their job. They also paid her wherever possible. And both Martha Ballard and Patty Sessions collected. The midwife's challenge was getting there, and the heroism of the midwife comes largely from that. Now, why risk your life to go if childbirth is such a simple thing? Well, it isn't a simple thing. The midwives knew what to do and offered the kind of skill, reassurance, and leadership and encouragement that helped to officiate in labor. And I'm sad to say that Patty Sessions, although her deliveries were successful, a horrendous number of those babies died, not because of her, and not because of the women, but because it's kind of good to have shelter and food and not to be terrified. I, I, when I tell these stories, you know, I grew up descended from Mormon pioneers, and I, it's just a litany. They went from Missouri to Illinois and then to Utah, and then lots of them picked up and went someplace else. But particularly that migration from Missouri to Illinois to Utah, I never understood it as these were refugees. That's what they were in every case. And so when I hear about people fleeing war and contention and tribalism and conflict among neighbors, I mean, we're talking about bloody Kansas, bloody Missouri, the eve of the Civil War, people highly armed, at odds with each other, and the solution, there wasn't much anybody could do because the, the federal government essentially said, not our problem, and the governor Ford of Illinois essentially gave up and said, I can't help you, and Brigham Young and others said, well, we'll go. And of course, as they go, they displace other groups of refugees, primarily Native Americans. So as I like to say to my students, the narrative of American history is a wonderful, terrible story. We tend to want to think of it as a hero story. It has a lot in common with what's happening to people in other parts of the world today. And when I realized that 15,000 people, a city of 15,000 people, were just invited to get up and leave, I began to understand the significance of what Patty Sessions was up again. Well, they got organized. They got organized at winter quarters, and compared to what it was like to go from Nauvoo to winter quarters, going the much longer journey, three times longer journey, to the Valley of the Great Salt Lake was a piece of cake. Um, And Patty went... In 1847, um, when she got to the Salt Lake Valley, there were very few deliveries in that trip because those women knew enough not to leave until their babies were born. There were few deliveries, but very few. But some of them started out pregnant, and Patty's business picked up really quickly after they got there. Maybe they got pregnant on the trail. I'm not sure. But anyway, 
she came into the Salt Lake Valley September 24th, 1847. She said, got into the valley. It is a beautiful place. My heart flows with gratitude to God. I have drove my wagon all the way, but part of the last two mountains. Then, after going to a meeting in the open-air bowery, she went and put one of her friends to bed with the sun. And she records this way in her diary. It was said to me more than five months ago that my hands should be the first to handle the firstborn son in the place of rest for the saints, even in the city of our God. And I have come more than 1,000 miles to do it since it was spoken. Martha Ballard's uh, diary is on your left. Patty Sessions, sample of her handwriting on the right. Patty, a little bit different style of handwriting. Martha Ballard was probably trained at home. She writes a kind of crude cursive, but she does write cursive. Um, and she's literate. In her generation, that is far less common than it would be in Patty Sessions' generation. Patty Sessions has a very flowing handwriting. Um, she can't spell. Your <laughs> syntax is kind of crazy. I mean, it is a, it's a rough, roughly written. In some ways, Martha Ballard's diary has more lyricism to it. But they're, they're very similar in that they have some education, more certainly in Martha's case than other women of her time. But they persist at it. They were both courageous and deeply religious woman, women, but they persisted despite the fact that they really weren't writers. They didn't have the polish or the education. Their records really are filled with what many readers would consider trivia. Seeds planted, neighbors visited, numbers of yards got out of the loom. Martha's is more methodical in many ways. She numbered deliveries, consistently noted the weather, and usually scratched a large X in the margin of an entry when a client paid for a delivery. Her diary was terse, but compared to Patty's sessions, it was almost verbose. Patty's is a model of compression. And my favorite example of that is in 1851, her husband, the husband of her youth, had, had died a year before, and she was a practical person. So she wrote, I was married to John Perry and feel to thank the Lord that I have someone to cut up my wood. <laughs> Well, I want to pause there and tell you that, of course, many of you in this room may be thinking, well, the big difference between these two women is polygamy, right? What about polygamy? Those Mormons, they had more than one wife. 
And uh, yeah, uh, some of them did. This is a very period in polygamy, however. It was introduced surreptitiously in 1843, 1844 in Nauvoo, primarily with just a tiny group of church leaders and wasn't really publicly announced till 1852 and then was pretty much promulgated through the 1850s rather strenuously. So Patty's diary is interesting because it helps us see this evolution. And I'm not going to focus on that part of her life today because I'm still working on it, but um, I can just tell you as a kind of tease so that you will know there will be some sensational events in the book when I get it finished, <laughs> that she was one of the so-called polyandrous wives of Joseph Smith, the founding Mormon prophet. Um, he married lots of women in Nauvoo, although one of my colleagues who's working on a history of polygamy says, wrong word, wrong term, shouldn't call it marriage, because um, they didn't cohabit, wasn't legally recognized, and in Joseph Smith's case, there were no documented children. It's a very interesting phenomenon that we're still trying to get our you know, heads around to understand. Polly, our Patty Sessions, was much older than the prophet. But she was very proud of the fact that she had been sealed. Sealed was the word they used in a sacred ceremony to the prophet Joseph Smith, even though she was still married to her husband. And her husband at one point, uh, he took a young wife and drove Patty crazy. But, you know, what had she done? Um, she then later married John Perry, who was a Welsh immigrant and a, one of the first conductors of what became the Tabernacle Choir and a musician, and he took one or two more wives, and that kind of drove her crazy too, but she dealt with it. So polygamy is there as part of the story, and it's certainly part of the story of Latter-day Saint women that I'm compelled to research and to talk about. But something very interesting happened to me as I began to really look for the humdrum, everyday patterns of people's lives. And that strange little phrase there about, I married John Perry and I've got someone to cut my wood, reminded me that marriage in the 19th century, in these conditions, in newly settled places, was very much an economic partnership in which both sides were deeply involved in productive labor of all kinds. Polygamous wives, including Patty Session, supported themselves, largely. They built the Utah economy, and that's not my conclusion. That would be Leonard Arrington, the great economic historian. These are laborers, farmers, horticulturalists, manufacturers, these women. So there's an incredible labor relationship in the household in this period. And the interesting labor relationship to me is the labor relationship among the women. And as I thought about that, I thought about the darkest moment in Martha Ballard's life which 
really was when her husband was jailed for debt. They're both becoming quite elderly. And her married son moves into her house, the house her husband had to leave to go into debtor's prison, with his wife and six or seven kids. And Martha's confined to one little room, and she is just miserable. And the first thing that happens, of course, when Ephraim Ballard gets out of jail is Martha gets her house back. And it's not the house so much as the kitchen. And what I see in this conflict between Martha Ballard and her daughter-in-law is that conflict over the economic resources and the management of this complex household economy. And that's exactly what happens to Patty. If she's in charge, they do fine. And it, it replicates this interesting hierarchical relationship that we don't fully understand because we haven't explored it enough among women. And so I'm going to say something that may be a little off the wall here. Just throw it out. Maybe I will or will not be able to document it more fully in my book. But I think the same complaints that come out of polygamy come out of monogamy. They sound a lot alike. It's a very, very different thing. To us, post-Freudian Americans, marriage is about sex. The 18th and 19th century, it's a lot about getting the wood cut, actually. (laughs) Well, I could go on, (laughs) but I won't. It's hard to imagine that one of these women lived through the American Revolution and the other through the Civil War. Reading the two diaries side by side might reinforce the notion that the lives of well-behaved women were essentially unchanging, the eternal woman, that in rural settings and frontiers, spinning, weaving, and birthing babies was done in the same way it had been done from time immemorial, that there's no change in women's life, and therefore, well-behaved women have no history, right? It can be important, but it's not historical unless something changes. Well, I think that assumption is wrong, and, and here is where I think looking at the details makes a difference. The similarities in the two diaries show us how radical change can take place almost unseen in the kind of intersections in ordinary life. Change, to borrow on your theme for the conference, is a crossroads. It's a meeting place of present and past. And within that meeting place, Small differences in social circumstances and sometimes very big differences in geographic location expose the possibility of new directions. So what I'd like to do for a few minutes then is zero in a little bit on some of the differences that I find in Patty's session 
and Martha Ballard and where I think some of those differences are coming from. And they begin, of course, with the fact that Patty Sessions and her husband shocked their relatives in 1836 by leaving Maine to join the Latter-day Saints. But, of course, they were part of massive migration from New England, most of which weren't religiously but economically motivated. So relocation on a much larger scale creates dramatic differences that are important. The religion matters and the migration matter. So I'm turning visually here to a familiar source for people who do Latter-day Saint history, a wonderful source for anyone who does Western history. And these are um, selections from a panorama um, created in the 1870s, so long after the railroad. So this is retrospective, looking back, probably romanticizing, but looking at the migration of the Latter-day Saints, the migration that I've already talked about in terms of Martha Ballard going from Nauvoo to Salt Lake City. And these were done by a um, um, man named Carl, Carl, Carl Christian Anton Christensen, C.C.A. Christensen, who was a Danish immigrant, one of many Scandinavian immigrants who came to Utah in the 1850s. And he did come with a handcart company, so he experienced that firsthand. But there were, you know, a lot of wagons around. But anyway, he told the story. He created history through his painting, and he would travel around with his panoramas telling the story of the migration. And so as we look at some of these shots, we see the lines coming out of the city, crossing in his view, a miracle of the Mississippi freezing to allow them to escape the mobs. You know, it's an exaggerated story. But the miracle story of the crossing of the children of Israel from Nauvoo out of the angry mobs into the wilderness. And then we see a miracle. They're hungry. They find shelter in these lean-tos. There are babies born in this camp um, early on the trail, and miraculously, again, and, you know, biologists have explained that it's a kind of natural phenomenon. The quail fall from the sky. They're not able to get across the river. They fall from the sky, and they have food. So it's a replication of the migration of the children of Israel. So we do have here a kind of miracle story, um, feeding back on the early stories, but a myth-making beginning almost from the moment they cross the river. And as Martha Ballard sees Providence leading her to Mrs. Hewins, this whole community sees Providence leading them to the Rocky Mountains. But the really remarkable thing, as we see them trending through the mud and the muck and the rain and the cabins, is how many there are. It's a city in motion, not just a small company of wagons. The entire community. And they form a community with street names and blocks and layouts, 
on the banks of the Missouri River as they try to get their act together for the migration to the Salt Lake Valley. And any of you who do Western history, this is just a familiar story about the amazing organizational capacity of Brigham Young, the great pioneer, and his great leaders. Well, I want us to think about the organizational capacity of Patty Session and her fellow Latter-day Saint women. I also want to think about the fact that they have a kind of optimism about the possibility of transforming the world and living in the world in relation to the practical world being infused with the power of God that comes through in their diaries in really remarkable ways. And one of the places it comes through is in their attitude toward music and dance. I mean, imagine, they've got a brass band, (laughs) plays at night, they've got fiddlers, they have music, they're organizing concerts through all this misery. I mean, literally through all this misery. And what they do when they get to winter quarters is they erect bowries, open-air places with branches to shelter them, and they dance. Now, Patty Sessions loves to dance. As far as I can tell, she never misses a dance. And she dances at winter quarters, as do most of the pioneers. And then she dances on the trail across the Great Plains to the Rocky Mountains. My favorite entry in the diary is where she talks about the arrival of many squaws into the pioneer camp. These are Sioux or other kinds of Plains Indians who frequently encounter the wagon trains as they cross. And she writes, They appear friendly. They sing, dance, and ride around. And we dance and have music. And in this case, the interchange between these peoples is an interchange not possible through words, but possible through music making and dancing. And I wish CCA Christiansen had been able to illustrate that scene for us. Many years later, shortly after her 70th birthday, Patty ended a family party, and she wrote, she attended a family party, and she wrote afterwards, I feel to thank the Lord that I have lived to enjoy what I enjoy. And I have health and activity and can go and associate with my children and their children and their children's children and can dance with them with as much ease as when I was young. I just read a diary entry today about a woman and her mother over 60 climbing ladders up to the top tower of the Nauvoo Temple just before they left Nauvoo in order to see the scenery. So there's something remarkable here about the energy, the optimism. We're going to move forward. We're going to move forward. And how do they move forward? Well, Patty Sessions is a joiner. She joined this church which wasn't just going to give her personal salvation, but was going to change the world. 
They were gonna, they were utopians. You can't understand the early Latter-day Saints without thinking of them as religious utopians. Crazy people. <laughs> Absolutely crazy people. But this optimism, and it's a very 19th century thing. By focusing on this, we see the 19th century stuff in Patty that's not the same thing as in Martha Ballard's. Absolutely not. Martha migrates, but she wants to reestablish what she left behind. She's very uncomfortable with the evangelical churches who are moving into Maine. She's conservative in that. She's quite conservative. Patty Sessions is a risk-taker par excellence, and in that, she's very much part of her generation. Now, there was a female society organized in Nauvoo that these early women believed gave them spiritual power equivalent to men. We're all arguing about this right now in contemporary Mormonism. But it's true. It was there. And Patty was part of it. And when that was disbanded as they moved in the migration, they kept it going informally. And what did they do in these meetings? Well, in these meetings... They, the common statement is, had a good time. What does it mean to have a good time? Well, it means talking to each other. It means singing. It means sometimes having a nip of brandy. What it usually means is speaking in tongues and translating. It's a kind of ecstatic religion that's quite lost from contemporary Mormonism, I think, which is pretty well-behaved. This is a little more raucous group than what you would see now in an ordinary congregation. So they're, they're infused with this spiritual energy, and then they face a lot of problems, a lot of problems. One of the problems has to do with health. So Patty is very involved with something called the Council of Health, which is a council organized by men and women. One of the church leaders is a Thompsonian practitioner, and they kind of look up to him. But his wife is as important as he is in this organization. These women have meetings of the Council of Health. Patty Sessions becomes the presidentist of the female Council of Health. And they do a lot of different things. For one thing, they investigate cases that don't go so well. They try to figure out if somebody used too much black pepper at the wrong time. I mean, they're herbalists. They're pretty conservative therapeutically. A few of the minutes survive of the Council of Health. And they exchange remedies. They talk about cases. And they speak in tongues. And they pray. And they sing. So these things come together. She also joins something called the Polosophical Society, which means we talk about theology, philosophy, poetry. It's hard to imagine Patty doing that from what we see in the diary, but she goes. She's a very good friend of Eliza R. Snow, who's the poet and one of the leaders of the Polosophical Society, which also includes men, but women are very much part of that. She then goes to class to learn the Deseret Alphabet. 
don't know if any of you have heard of the Deseret Alphabet, but we're not only going to reform society, we're going to reform the language so that immigrants don't have so much trouble learning English, so they knew alphabet. And Patty tries to learn that. In all of these activities, she displayed both a passion for learning, enormous energy, and an affinity for doing things as a group. Now, Martha Ballard is embedded in a community of women, but it's informal. It gets institutionalized in the 19th century. And one of the strong themes in women's history in the 19th century is how do we go from early religious societies to feminist societies? The Mormon story is a case study. It's a fabulous case study. I don't think we've looked at it that way. And we need to look at it that way. And I don't have time to develop this point except... I do want to give you one very interesting example, at least interesting to me. You may have heard of Amelia Bloomer, who gave her name to the Bloomer. (laughs) And this was a reform movement in the 1840s and early 50s to get women out of tight corsets and long skirts dragging in the mud. And um, so she built her costume. A friend had been to the Middle East and had seen women wearing something called Turkish trousers, which were perfectly modest. They were full. They were tied in at the ankle. And then she wanted, didn't want to totally scandalize everybody. They put shorter skirts over the Turkish um, trousers. Now, this is kind of a cartoon. The skirts are a little shorter than I've seen in other pictures of Turkish trousers. But... Early feminists like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Amelia Bloomer, and others, temperance reformers, health reformers of various kinds, tried this out. They finally gave it up because they became a laughing stock. But guess what Patty's doing in 1852? I went to the female meeting. Fifty-three gave in their names to join the council. We had a good meeting, spoke much on the subject of taking care of our health, to avoid tight lacing, cold or wet feet, etc. Then a few days later, Saturday, I went to Sister Smith's to help form a fashion for the females that will be more conducive to health than the long, tight-waisted dress filled with whalebone and hickory that they wear now. Now, I don't know anybody, maybe somebody has studied the reform dress reform movement among the Latter-day Saints. I have not found any secondary literature on this, but there's a wonderful hint in uh, a Harper's Magazine for October 10th, 1857, where the guy just makes fun of Eliza R. Snow and some of Patty's friends. He's not talking about Patty's sessions, but people she knew. People who were part of Brigham Young's household, his wives, so to speak. And he talks about them wearing this ridiculous bloomer costume. And he can't tell whether they're more outrageous because of polygamy or because of feminism. Many of you know that in 1869, when the federal government for the first time passed legislation to outlaw polygamy in the territory of Utah, some wag 
in Washington, D.C. said, well, we know how we can get rid of polygamy in Utah because 1869 is a moment when they're talking about is there going to be female suffrage in the new Reconstruction Amendments? And everybody thought, absolutely not. It was the most scandalous thing anybody thought of. And somebody said, well, we could, we could do it in Utah because if we did it, then the women could vote and they would outlaw polygamy and this would save us a lot of trouble. So I don't know where our, the women in Utah got the idea. But when the Cullen Bill was prepared for Congress, they organized something called an indignation meeting, which they held in the tabernacle down on Temple Square, and um, gave long speeches. And in preparation for that meeting, they met at the 15th Ward Relief Society, and one of the planks that they adopted was to ask for the vote. It was very, very quiet. They got it without a campaign, without a fuss. Now, historians say, oh, Brigham Young gave them the vote as a way to counter the, uh, you know, it was a great public relations move. But only attention to the humdrum records of the women who were organizing themselves in the 1840s and 50s helps us to see they asked for it. And they had proved themselves worthy of it through their organizational and economic activity during that period. They organized a women's suffrage newspaper that began, a women's rights newspaper, they had suffrage, that began in 1872 and hosted Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, the meeting in the tabernacle. Now, this is a long and complex story. I don't have time to say. The federal government eventually took the vote away from anyone associated with polygamy, disenfranchised Mormon women as well as Mormon men, but they got it back in statehood. Latter-day Saint women were the first in the nation to vote after New Jersey lost the vote in 1810. Wyoming territorial legislature passed women's suffrage few weeks before Utah, the end of 1869, but there was an election in Utah first. So I, I mean it when I say these downgraded polygamist wives were the first in the nation to vote in the post-Civil War period. And I think there's a connection. It's a complex connection. I don't think it would have happened if there hadn't been an anti-polygamy movement. These women were savvy. They knew when they were in a position of power. They believed in their religious community, and they were willing to defend it, but they asked for something as well, and a lot of somethings. They got a lot of somethings over the 19th century as they organized economically and medically and in other ways and left a marvelous heritage for our generation of young women, Latter-day Saint or non-Latter-day Saint. These are a little bit of what I find, the drama in the humdrum. Thank you. Yeah. So. Okay.
Um, wow. <clears throat> I'm not choked up. Ah, but, um, and, and the comments about drama and the humdrum, she fought, she, she finished it perfectly, uh, for us because that was one of the comments that picked up on Twitter real quick and folks were posting all around. So thanks everybody for doing that. We usually have time for questions, but we're on a tight schedule. And if you want a signed book, which I know you do, uh, head to the exhibit hall and you'll see Rebecca Price of our staff looking like a secret service agent hustling. Laurel Thatcher, Ulrich, out of here uh, and there. I have a quick announcement. See? There she goes. The bodyguards are out there. I have a very quick announcement. That, um, <clears throat> I feel like Peter Brady. If you ever saw that episode where his voice changed while they were singing that song? I don't know what just happened. I think I just haven't spoken in a couple hours, which would surprise many of you. Um, Quote from Bethany Hawkins, check your packets to see if you picked up a white envelope by mistake from the exhibit hall just before the plenary address. If you find it, please leave it at the ASLH registration. I'm going to say that again. If you have an erroneous white envelope in your stuff that's not full of powder, if it's full of powder, call 911. Um, it was something from the exhibit hall. One of the exhibitors, um, somebody might have grabbed something off the table and brought. Would you please bring it to registration immediately? Uh, thanks a bunch, everybody, for being here um, and for giving uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich your attention. She was wonderful, was she not? One more hand in absence. Thank you.